0: The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for God has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in the holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Let us worship the Lord our God. You, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. O oh my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make Amen. me to know your ways, O oh Lord. Teach me your paths. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, God instructs sinners in the way. The Lord leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble God's way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep God's decrees and decrees. Eternal God, creator of all that is and all that will ever be, you are the giver of all life. You are the source of all that is good. We abide in your love and we rest in your grace. Therefore, we thank you and we praise you, O source of all of our blessings, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. However we gather in Christ's name, it is nonetheless Christ in whom we gather, and so that means our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. We are glad and grateful to greet one another in the name of Jesus Christ with all that that means for us. We ask everyone, members and guests alike, please to sign the friendship pad, which you'll find on your pew. If you will send it down the pew and back again, that will give us the advantage of each other's names. And likewise to you worshiping at home and in other locations, we hope you'll sign our virtual friendship pad that we might note your presence with us as well. We'd be very pleased if all of you would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service. That time of fellowship takes place in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just to the right of that door of the next to the pulpit and down a very short hallway our deacons will have put out some light refreshments but most importantly we will have the opportunity to engage with one or one another face to face and more deeply in our common life to that end i'd like to highlight a few things from our common life together that you may note they're not on the bulletin this time but you'll find all of them on the church website uh, the first is to note that um on the back of your hymn insert, you just had it in your hand, you can turn it over, you will find that we are conducting a Linton Drive for Philly House, which used to be called Sunday Breakfast Mission. Philly House is one of our mission partners here in Philadelphia with whom we have, uh, we have engaged in work together for many years. So we are grateful to be able to collect on behalf of Philly House. And we will, starting next week, have receptacles right here in front of where you make your offering so that if you wish to make your offering here at the church of items for the men of Philly House, you may do so. There's also a QR code on this, I believe, which will take you straight to a way to, to donate online for those items that they most need. But I hope you will join me in a Linton practice. You know, some folks give things up for Lent. I hope you'll join me in a Linton practice of not coming to the Lord's house empty-handed. Come with something for our fellow human beings who stand in need of these items that are listed there. As I said, there are a number of other opportunities to plug in deeply to the life of faith here at First Church, and I commend them to your attention on the church website uh, and in our weekly e-news, which you can get in your box every week on Monday morning. If you don't get that, just contact the church office. We'll be happy to add you to it. It is my great pleasure to welcome to our pulpit this morning the Reverend Dr. Brian Blunt, Brian is an old friend of mine of many years, uh, going back to summer Greek at Princeton Seminary uh, in 1997, and uh, uh, recently retired to much acclaim. He is now the President Emeritus of Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond and Charlotte. Uh, The thing about Brian as a scholar, he's a a wonderful scholar for the academy, but he's also a wonderful scholar for the church. Uh, Every time a book comes out that Brian has published, Clergy flock to it because we know it's going to be the best we're going to find. So, Brian, we are so grateful to have you here at First Church this morning. With all of these things noted, let us move now in our worship to our confession of sin. The season of Lent, of which this is the first Sunday, is a season of introspection. Introspection is best entered into in a spirit of honesty honesty with ourselves, honesty with God honesty with one another about those aspects of our lives that stand in need of God's grace. Friends, our pardon is already assured, so we need not fear confession. It is an opportunity to draw near in candor to our God who has made us, who knows us, and who loves us. So let us pray first in unison and then in silence. Holy God, remind us of our baptism as we prepare to come to your table. Remind us that you have formed us with your own hands, made us in your own image, and placed us in this world to be your people. Given abundance upon abundance, we grasp at what we have and fail to see the ways you have already blessed us. Created for generous living, we have retreated into fear of scarcity Forgive our failure to live the way you made us to live. (coughs) We live joyfully, seeing all the ways your blessings have been given to us, and respond in deeper commitment, for we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. As far as the east is from the west, says the psalmist, so far has God removed all unrighteousness from us. Friends, beloved, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Testament scripture today is taken from the book of Genesis. We read in the ninth chapter beginning at the eighth verse and continuing through the seventeenth. Let us listen for the word of God to us this day. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, I will establish my covenant with you, and never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant. That I will make between you and every, me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Our second reading, our epistle reading today, comes to us from the epistle of Peter. We read there in the third chapter, beginning at the 18th verse, and continuing through the 22nd, this is the first epistle of Peter. For Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. May God bless to our hearing and our understanding these readings of God's holy word.
1: morning. Before I read the New Testament scripture, I want to say how much of a gift it is for me to be in worship with Barron this morning, to have followed him from his time as a student at Princeton Theological Seminary to his ministry here. It's a gift, and I am grateful for this opportunity. The New Testament scripture is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. Let us listen for God's word to us. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The reign of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of the Lord. pray. Dear God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The reign of God is at I used to think that at any moment, the world could end. And it would be a good thing, the second coming. God, through Jesus, here again. No, really, I literally believed it. Well, maybe more theoretically believed it. Biblically believed it. Faithfully believed it. Spiritually believed it. When, I guess, perhaps that means It's another way of saying I actually didn't believe it at all. Put on a good show, though. Looking back, I see now how I even convinced, fooled myself. I thought, God, well, Jesus was coming soon, and I thought I was supposed to help out. Not like a travel agent would help out, planning the flight, getting a place for him to stay. Remember how that didn't work out so well the first time? Stable, manger, barn animals, Really? More like an announcer, not like the sackcloth and ashes fools on the street corner. The end is nigh, more like the play-by-play guys who call NFL games. Revered, appropriately attired, well-paid, gargantuan audience. Fired up, I launched myself out of seminary at 24 years of age to challenge a church to champion the apocalyptic Jesus agenda in their neighborhood like a California forest fire, I expected what we ignited would rage. Even if it went out of control, it would be a good thing because it was God's thing. Like the burning bush that wasn't consumed. You know the one that talked to Moses? This burning bush would have something to say to the faithful in 1981 without destroying the faithful and all the stuff the faithful had accumulated. Lit up, They wouldn't have to give up, at least not until the nearness of God turned into the presence of God. At that consummate point, I assumed but wasn't sure that church folk would surrender every single thing they had in exchange for a relationship with the Ancient of Days. But my post-seminary days weren't going so well. God was on the move. I was ready to tell the story, but nobody wanted to hear it at least not from me, at least not full-time. The best I could get was a preaching gig or two with churches looking for pastors. Having heard and seen me, they endeavored to look some more. Didn't they hear the message I was preaching? Didn't they see what God was doing in me? They did not. Inside me, the flame dimmed, flickered a lot, threatened several times to go out, After, I'm embarrassed now to admit it, just a few months, well, seven, and seven is a biblical and therefore important number, I was losing hope. Not just in my ability to convey the message, the reign of God is at hand, but in the message itself and my ability to convey it and proclaim it. It was at this point that God, apparently having no idea what to do with this annoyed, young, unemployable Baptist, turned me into a Presbyterian. Was I being demoted? (laughs) After all I had done, after how hard I had worked, after how ready I was to hear a Baptist congregation shout out an affirmation, preach, preach, preach. In response to my erudite, eloquent, and yet ground-shaking oratory, I was being offered up to the pulpit of a people renowned for their quiet worship ways. Nobody ever talks back when you want them to talk back. I was a Baptist holding a lit match. The Presbyterians were committed, think committee, fire extinguishers. At least as far as worship was concerned, and worship was where I thought everything started. I thought wrong yet again. I was called by a Presbyterian congregation to their Presbyterian church, but they were anything but quiet, well, mostly quiet and quite dignified in worship, but they lived loud in the neighborhood and the wider community. Their willingness to engage rekindled my flaming belief that God was on the move. I reclaimed a little of that youthful arrogance God tempered it with the maturity and wisdom of that congregation, but the light was back on. I felt the flame again. The reign of God is at hand. Time for people to repent and believe in the good news. The reign starts with Jesus. God come to us uninvited, transcendent, breaking and entering, a capital crime, and ultimately it cost God his life. The audacity of the supernatural to enter uninvited into the natural order was met with immediate resistance. As soon as that heavenly voice identified John's recent baptizee as the son of God, he was driven away from civilization. His first congregants were wild, wilderness beasts. The domesticated beasts were waiting for him back in church. By the 6th verse of Mark's 3rd chapter, those domesticated beasts convened around the agenda of his destruction. Like an animal, he would be put down, put down, hung up on a cross because of his message about and his personification of the imminent inbreaking, well, maybe call it what it was, the imminent trespassing into our world, God. And what God wanted our world to be. The imminent trespassing of God's imminent reign. The reign of God is at hand. It is an apocalyptic message. An end time message, yes to be sure. But not really a message about the end of time. It's not that time will stop as much as it is that God will start. Time without God will end. Time with God will begin. Apocalyptic messaging is less about a thing happening than it is about a person arriving. The way Jesus arrived so unexpectedly that first time, the way Jesus will arrive just as unexpectedly the next time, and this next time, whether we want to or not, we won't be able to crucify him, to stop him. In him, Jesus, God, what God expects of us will be fully present. No one will be able to escape him And what he demands from us, and he will demand everything. Trapped. That is what it apparently felt like to the Pharisees and the scribes and the ones who came down from the temple in Jerusalem, to his own disciples even. It felt like being trapped when God takes control, when God makes demands, when God decides who is in control. Here's a hint God is in control. Imagine how this feels, though, if you think you're in control. The way surely the leaders of the religious infrastructure in Roman-occupied Palestine in the early first century when Jesus came trespassing thought they were in spiritual, social, and political control. To be sure, they were leaders of the faith commissioned in their roles by God, awaiting the realization of God's messianic presence and the person of the one who would represent God's power. Sure, though, that until that messianic moment arrived, they had been left in charge. They adjudicated how God did and did not convey God's intentions and in human reality by the way they interpreted God's laws, by the way they tended to God's temple in the capital city, by the way they mentored God's satellite synagogues throughout the land, by the way they extended through their liturgies and sacrificial rites and legal interpretations and theological constructs God's supernatural presence in the human present. According to these righteous leaders of the righteous people, God restricted worship in God's presence to the ritually pure and the physically whole people. These leaders controlled the rituals and interpreted the codes of purity and holiness. So they got to say who was welcome in God's presence. Sure, God forgave sin, but these leaders claim that they brokered that forgiveness on God's behalf with their prayers, with their sacrifices, with their rituals, all of which they supervised. When you come to think about it, it is kind of like us, well, like me anyway, the contemporary church and its leaders. We are what we are in the 21st century by emulating what they were in the first century. So here's our message, too. Want to get close to God? Want to find access to God's forgiveness? Want to better understand God's law? Well, come to church where the leaders ordained and non-ordained have been commissioned to get results. So when Jesus tramps into a situation like that, acting like he can do all this God stuff without following the example and teaching of these leading God people, things get tense. Tense when Jesus declares that the reign of God is at hand in him, in his person, not their synagogue, not their temple, not even our church. Tense when Jesus says that God will invade directly soon. Tense when Jesus says that to get ready for God, you've got to get right with God by getting in line with the kind of life Jesus was living. But what kind of life was he living? Touching lepers then, welcoming immigrants now. Uplifting women then, fighting for women's rights now. Forgiving sins then, forgiving folks who have been incarcerated now. Cavorting with tax collectors and sex workers then, inviting folks from the wrong neighborhoods into our neighborhood, church, and homes now. Performing civil disobedience like working on the Sabbath then, performing acts of civil disobedience like protesting for sensible gun laws now breaking down ethnic barriers like the ones that separated Jews and Gentiles, then figuring out a way to tear down racial boundaries by offering up equity and equality for people of color now. Tense, because when commissioned and ordained, and just regular faithful folk folk acting and living in the religious infrastructure of the time recognize that Jesus is living like that. There's a problem. But Jesus reveals the intent of God's end time, present, in the present time. Jesus reveals what God expects of us in the future, in the present. That's what the word apocalyptic means. This word apocalyptic has become a code word for cataclysm and calamity. Purveyors of popular culture, especially the authors of novels and screenwriters of television and movies, have rendered an unrecognizable manifestation of what apocalypse is all about. Monsters and zombies and world-ending catastrophes and alien invasions. The world as we know it comes viciously to an end. A dogged, ragtag remnant is all that is left in the churning wake. But apocalypse, at least... The way the biblical writers understood it, the way Jesus understood it when he said the reign of God is at hand, meant not destruction but revelation. Apocalyptic material was revealing material, it revealed God's terminal strategic intent, it revealed God's end game. And since that end game would be ultimately realized at the end of all things, the end of even Time itself, the term lost the sense of revealing and took on the aura of destroying. And not rehabilitative destruction like the tearing down of a decrepit building to put up a new one, the kind of destruction that is most often on display in the book of Revelation, but a mindless and punitive destruction for destruction's sake. That's not the rain, the apocalyptic rain that Jesus promises even though it will be revealed at the end time, which again is not the end of time. At the moment when time without the immediate eternal presence of God transitions into a time, in the immediate and eternal presence of God, God's will for humankind and human history will finally be revealed. And looking back, we will finally be able to understand why God allowed history to unfold the way it did. The meaning of history itself will be revealed. The coming of such understanding may even be more difficult to believe than the second coming of God's Messiah. But that is what the apocalypse is all about. That is what the end time of God's reign promises. God's presence. Our understanding. What we need to understand right now is that this reign of God initiated in Jesus' first coming, promised with his second coming, is already revealing itself in human history. The revelation of the end time is active in this time. It seems improbable only because of an inaccurate understanding of the reign of God. Too often it's understood spatially as a place like the Empire of Rome, like the sovereign territory of the United States of America, like the sanctuary of a local church or synagogue or mosque, a place where some find safety because of their privileged status and others jealously seek entry. We want to be saved, and we want to find a space where that saving can be completely realized, like country, like church, like my and not your particular church, like the reign of God. Where is it? Where will it exist? What are its borders? Won't God use those apocalyptic borders to protect me and people like me and keep everyone else out? How will I access it? Will I be safe there? How will we keep people we don't want in from coming in? How will we keep others out? How will I find a place where I can be saved? Let me tell you something. The reign of God, at least in the Gospel of Mark, the one that Jesus proclaims, is less a space than an active force. Jesus and Mark inhabits no particular space for long. In fact, he's moving all over the Palestinian space. Sometimes he draws people into his space like the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Sometimes he maneuvers into their space like the Syrophoenician woman with the intention of doing something transformational by virtue of something he brings with him that moves through him a realization of authority, a rule of benevolent power, channeling into history the way electricity courses through a wall, powering, lighting, changing as it goes. As Jesus powered the infirm, lit up the darkness, changed the way people understood their relationship to their faith as he moved around them. The goal in following Jesus is not to find safe harbor, not to find a safe space, Instead, Jesus dragged his disciples into precarious situation after precarious situation, promising that the reality of God's reign was coursing through them as surely as it was manifest in him. So should it be with us. Appropriate response to the movement of God's reign in our midst is not to seek shelter, even in a space like this one, but to become conduits of its power so that we become pushed out into the wilderness as Jesus was pushed out into the wilderness. According to Jesus, by repenting and believing is the way we respond, that's how we go into the wilderness since Christians are far better at believing than they are at repenting, let me start with believing, with what Jesus wanted them to believe. Simple. The reign of God is at hand. It has begun in me. It will blossom in my ministry. It will be assaulted in my death. It will rise up in my resurrection. It will conquer in my return. Soon, in the meantime, it will bubble up unexpectedly, uncontrollably, transformationally in you. Believing means acting. It's not just what we hold in our heads or our hearts, it's what we do with our feet. If you're not walking, you're not believing. If you're not following, you're not believing. If you're not acting the way Jesus acted, you're not believing. Having heard and having believed the proclamation, disciples follow the man making the proclamation, and that is how we start to become conduits of the proclamation's power. That's how God, like electricity, moves through us. But you can't follow, which means you can't believe if you don't repent. In Jesus' declaration of the coming reign, repentance comes first. Repentance is the prerequisite for belief. If you can't repent of your old ways, you can't follow in the footsteps of the new way. You can't bring your tarnished luggage of your old life, your old ways on this new Jesus trip. It weighs you down. It holds you back. It's too heavy. It's rejected at the ticket counter. And it's not a matter of taking some stuff out of one bag and repositioning it in another bag or keeping what you can and throwing the rest away. You've got to throw it all away with Jesus. The new way is so radically different from the old ways that you can't just hold on to what was if you want to be with him in what is. Repentance is realizing that the life road we're traveling has diverged away from its original God-oriented intent. We're living the way we want to live, not the way God wants us to live, but we're doing our best to make it work. Make our old way work. Instead of repenting it, we Christianize it. Kind of like, well, putting on a white hood and gown and riding out in the night to hunt and kill black folks, and then, when that's not possible, burning crosses on their lawns. Those were Christians, commissioned Christians following commissioned Christian leaders, right? Kind of like creating laws that segregate black folk from white folk and going to sing and preach and pray the divine authorization of such behavior and segregated white churches led by commissioned white leaders. Those were Christians following commissioned Christian leaders, right? Kind of like killing God's good creation with our human wastefulness and arrogance and sanctifying the behavior by calling it stewardship. Those are Christians following commissioned Christian leaders, right? Kind of like treating people whose gender identity or sexual preference is different from what ordained leaders call appropriate as unacceptable before God and God's people. Those are Christians following commissioned Christian leaders, right? kind of like building an international economic system cherished by the missionary leaders of our time that is as oppressive to the poor and struggling as any system the world has seen since the one John of Patmos castigated in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation and blessing it as our own. Those are Christians following commissioned Christian leaders, right? kind of like championing the way the nation state in which we are born, no matter how vicious it can be to its own citizens, how disdainfully it can treat those aliens who seek shelter within its body politic, how murderously it can act when some other people or power gets in its way because the God-fearing leaders of our time conflate faith and patriotism. Those are Christians following commissioned Christian leaders, right? Are you on such a road? To repent is to turn aside. Turn back. To get back on the way of God's inbreaking, trespassing reign as revealed through Jesus. Want to be believing Christians too often? Succumb, though, to anti repentance. Talking about it, but not doing it. In fact, doing the opposite. And what's the opposite of repentance? Standing your ground. Stay in the course, standing fast, like. Like when the United States reaches a critical point in its understanding of its racial heritage and the role of systemic racism from the era of slavery into the contemporary era of extrajudicial killing of black men and women by agents of the state on the streets and their bedrooms on video and public view in broad daylight, Seeing the danger of the direction traveled leaders call for repentance that leads to protests demanding justice for people of color that then leads to the toppling of monuments erected to white supremacy that seems destined for securing a glimpse of the promised reign of God and the human present until dissatisfied with this turning aside to get back on track, we double back and instead of seeking repentance for the impact of white supremacy in the history of the country, we press a campaign for erasing the teaching of that history, for fear of how that teaching impacts the fragile spirits and minds of commissioned Christians who dominate the body politic and much of the Christian church. Commissioned Christians routinely act this way. Jesus believers do not. You can't believe in Jesus' reign of God here and coming if you can't repent of the horrific behavior of humankind, even my One wonders if we've gone so far down the wrong road that we can't find our way back that we even want to get back to repent and therefore to believe. Which brings me back to the apocalyptic reality of the reign of God. The assurance that the ultimate, consummate realization of God's presence in human history is about to break open in history at any moment. That kind of belief, I grant you, is foolish. The Apostle Paul, only a few decades after Jesus' crucifixion, admitted it. Foolishness, folly, the faith we have in a crucified Messiah who lives again, pretends to come again imminently. Only an absolute fool believes that. But the fool who believes it, really believes it, lives with the freedom of throwing caution to the wind the way Jesus did. Because you anticipate something amazing. You sense something stupendous like a volcanic eruption out of nowhere at any moment and you want to be ready for it so you do whatever it takes you repent, you expend whatever it costs, you believe to get ready and that is not only studying the reign of God that is living the reign of God right now right here The reign of God is at hand. The question is, what are we?
2: can never fully know everything on this side of heaven. We dare to proclaim what we do know about God and about one another. So come, let us join our voices together with communities across time and space and confess together what we believe, here today using the Confession from 1967. God's sovereign love is a mystery beyond the reach of the human mind. Human thought ascribes to God superlatives of power, wisdom, and goodness. But God reveals divine love in Jesus Christ by showing power in the form of a servant, wisdom in the folly of the cross, and goodness in receiving sinful men and women. The power of God's love in Christ to transform the world Discloses that the Redeemer is the Lord and Creator who made all things to serve the purpose of God's love. You may be seated. We gather together in this space each week to declare that the kingdom of God has come near. Even in our broken and hurting world, we see signs of this divine kingdom all around us. Communities opening their doors to individuals who've been pushed to the margins. People offering one another mercy even when it's not deserved. And God's Spirit calling each one of us beloved. God's kingdom has come near, and we cannot help but be changed by it. We gather our gifts today in commitment to one another and to a world transformed. Our tithes and offerings will now be received. Holy and loving God, as we remember Christ's fierce solidarity with us, may we dare to live in solidarity with one another. Bless these gifts to the well-being of our communities, our bodies, and our planet. Encourage us with a vision of the world transformed by your kingdom. We pray in the name of your beloved. Amen.
0: Beloved in Christ, this is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. It does not belong to the church. It is not limited to Presbyterians. Indeed, it has no limitations whatsoever on it, precisely because it is Christ's table. Christ, who calls all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, to come to him and receive rest. Christ, who invites us all to know him in the breaking of bread. So come, dear friends to this joyful feast of the Lord.
2: The Lord be with you.
0: And also with you.
2: Lift up your hearts.
0: We lift them up to the Lord.
2: Let us give thanks to the Lord our God.
0: It is right to give our thanks and praise.
2: It is truly right, O God, and our greatest joy to give you thanks. and Our creator and our... You made all things and sustained them by your power. You formed us in your image to love and serve you but we forgot your promises and abandoned your commandments. In your mercy, you did not reject us, but still claimed us as your own. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with choirs of angels and with all the faithful of every time and place who forever sing the glory of your name. Blessed is he.
0: You are holy, O God, of majesty and blessed. Holy, O God of majesty, you lived among us, you were baptized as God's own, you went down to death for us. In dying and rising, you gave birth to your church and delivered us from sin and death. So remembering all your mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this wine from the gifts you have given us and celebrate with joy the redemption won for us in Christ Jesus. Accept our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as a living and holy offering of ourselves, that our lives may proclaim the one crucified and risen.
2: Great is the mystery of faith. Christ Christ has died, Christ Christ is risen, risen. Christ Christ will will come again. again. Gracious God, we ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts of bread and wine that we break and the cup that we bless. May they be a communion of the body and the blood of Christ. By your Spirit, unite us with the living Christ and with all who are baptized in his name, that we may be one in the mystery in every place. As this bread is Christ's body to us, send us out to be the body of Christ in the world. Join with us now, O Lord, as we offer the prayer that your child taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven... On the night that Jesus was arrested, he gathered with his closest friends in the world for a humble meal. At the end of the meal, he took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it, saying, This is my body, friends, broken for you. Every time you do this, remember me.
0: In the same manner, after they had supped, he took a cup of wine, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes again. Dear friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let us keep the feast. Let's pray together once more. Gracious and loving God, we thank you and we praise you that in love you have reached across the abyss of human sin to bring us once more into your embrace. Having thus been fed now at Christ's table, send us forth to be his body, for it is in Christ's name that we make all of our prayers. Amen. Amen.
1: God is at hand. If we truly believe it, truly believe it, I suspect we have some work to do. And now may the grace of God, the love of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with each of us. Now henceforth and